Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, a couple things. Um, so this weekend, or this week, I will be off uh, for the whole week. I'll be out of town doing a road trip for our honeymoon. And so there will not be a video this coming Thursday for my channel. However, I do already have the podcast for Sensibly Speaking podcast done for this week. And also, uh, well, we'll see. This next week, the next weekend, uh, the critical Q&A might be a pre-recorded one that I'm doing, or it might be a live episode when we get back from our road trip, uh, which I was thinking we might feature Melissa in it as well, uh, give it a little special honeymoon edition of a critical Q&A show. But that's not definite yet. It depends totally on uh, us getting back in time and all of that. And anyway, so we'll, I'll, let, I'll post, post updates on Twitter and on uh, Facebook for those of you who are following me there. Uh, if you're not following me on Twitter, by the way, please do so. I am uh, at Shelton Designer. And uh, I am... Uh, I like Twitter. <laughs> anyway, and I'll also try to post updates here uh, on YouTube uh, on the community tab if I can while I'm out and about on the road. We'll probably know by Friday or uh, next Saturday if that's going to happen or not. Either way, there will be a critical Q&A episode and a podcast this next week, uh, but there will not be a Thursday video. Okay, that all being said, uh, the other thing I wanted to kind of throw out there for everybody who's watching this and appreciates and likes uh, and wants to help maybe support my channel is to please check me out on Patreon. There is a link below uh, to my Patreon page. Um, you know, any little bit that you could uh, give in terms of supporting me through Patreon is what helps keep this channel going and helps keep me going. Uh, so that I can keep giving you the quality content that I'm doing. So, all right, that being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Bullshit man. I was recently offered a job and was informed in one of the interviews that they used the Hubbard management system. I then did some more research online and found out that the owners of the business are big Scientology donors. Needless to say, I was quite wary and declined the job. I would like to know how the Hubbard management system is used in these organizations and does it differ significantly from how Scientology itself is run? What are the differences? Is there any real benefit or positives of the Hubbard management system? What are the negatives? Okay, good question. Um, basically, there is a Scientology front group, which is called the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises, or WISE. And this group was established in the late 1970s because L. Ron Hubbard felt that uh, outside businesses that were run by Scientologists were preying on the orgs and were taking org staff and um, get, getting them to come and work at their Scientology, or not their Scientology companies, but their companies, whatever products or services they were selling. And they were utilizing, of course, Hubbard's policies in these businesses. Um, there is a whole, you know, gaggle of L. Ron Hubbard policies, and they've been divided up into various books based on each division of Scientology's organizing board. And I'm not going to get into a whole treatise on that. There will eventually be a video, a whole video on it in my Basics of Scientology series. In short, the organizing board is a seven-division org structure 
uh, and um, and it's and the, well, it's like a communications division and a dissemination or promotion division and a treasury division. There's all these different divisions that have different functions, which are all supposed to work together to produce the overall product of the organization. Uh, when Scientologists, staff members who are trained on Hubbard's policies because they're staff, go work out outside businesses which are run by Scientologists, they thought, well, why aren't we applying the same rules and guidelines there? That's kind of how that started. But it wasn't, it, that, that it, WISE evolved into selling people Hubbard's management system. The first reason it came into existence was to get Scientologists to stop grabbing up org staff members and putting them into their organizations. Uh, okay, so uh, you and uh, people who want to use Hubbard's management system have to pay the Church of Scientology basically a royalty fee uh, through the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises, which presents itself as a um, uses Hubbard's management system, but they don't call it Scientology, see? Anyway, it's just a front group. Now, as far as the system itself goes, basically what they do is they take the basic policies of L. Ron Hubbard, the most simple stuff, they've secularized it. They've literally gone through Hubbard's policies and they've taken out any references to Scientology-specific jobs or Scientology-specific lines or things that Hubbard made comments about in the policy letters that might not necessarily be directly applicable to the point being made because Hubbard would sometimes get diarrhea of the mouth and run off on communists or, you know, other historical nonsense or current political things or, you know, he'd enter comments into the policies that didn't really, strictly speaking, have much to do with them. Um, now, the kind of things I'm talking about with the basic policies of how a Scientology organization is run overall would include things like the communications or dispatch system. Uh, there's a room in every Scientology organization called the comm center. And it, hey, there's a basket for every single staff member to receive written dispatches and communications. Um, and there's a comm runner. And then, not only is there the comm center centrally located, but then you also have in each division, uh, which is basically a, you know, a, a location in the organization, uh, you'll have a divisional comm center, and each staff member has a three-basket system on their desk, an in, an appending, and an out basket. And any communications the staff member receives go into the in basket within 24 hours per policy. He's supposed to re you know, look at the dispatch, either handle it, or if it can't be handled right away, you know, do whatever he's doing with it, maybe because it's a longer-term order that he's got to do and he's got a week to do it and he sticks it in his pending basket, and that's the stuff that's waiting to be done. And you should see most staff members' pending baskets. They're like, Rrr. you know, I've seen staff members with like literally the end basket is sitting on top of the pile because it got so big, it just pushed the end basket up. And then there is the out basket. When you finish an order, let's say, um, you're supposed to write done on it, and then you're supposed to actually uh, report compliance to that order by attaching some kind of proof that you've completed the order and sending it then back to the originator of the order. And ideally, according to Hubbard policy, this should all be handled in writing, not verbally. You shouldn't have the senior coming to you and, and giving you these demands or orders. This is one of those um, places where that Hubbard policy about if it isn't written, it isn't true, comes into play 
organizationally. Verbal orders are frowned on, even though they happen every day, all day. Uh, per policy, they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to, everything's supposed to be in writing. That way there's no confusion, no fuss, no muss when it comes to what was the order and, and, and did you comply to it. And, all this, and there's supposed to be paper trails for all this stuff. So they generate, orgs tend to be paper factories. There's just tons of paper used for uh, all these orders and dispatches flying around. Plus, of course, you have telexes, and those are usually printed out and also, which are basically the equivalent of emailed orders or communications. And those also go in these baskets. So that's just one part of the system. I believe that, the, that setting up the whole comm system throughout the organization and making sure everybody has the three basket system, they, knows how to, they know how to use it, and that there's, a, there's somebody handling the job of comm runner who's, who's you know, routing all these pieces of paper around to the various places that they need to go, uh, that's, you know, somebody gets that job. So that's one of the first things. The, 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 the way the, the Hubbard management system is implemented is, a, is in phases. There are steps to it. So the comm system establishment is one phase. I'm not fully familiar with all the phases of it. I've only, this was all happening kind of on the periphery. I observed this happening and I saw some of the wise books on, the, on how to do, you know, what they do. Um, but I, my experience, of course, was always directly in Scientology organizations more so than, than in the wise companies. Um, but I know that other things that they do set up are uh, a statistics system. That's a big thing, huge thing, where everybody is supposed to get assigned to them one or more production statistics, which measure how much you are producing on your job. And any job can be staticized. You can come up with some kind of a production statistic to measure is a person producing and then and, and can that be compared to what they were producing last week and is it more or less? And sometimes you have to get a little creative about it. I mean, you might have people on an assembly line is easy, just number of, you know, widgets that they produced, right? Or number of, if they were quality control and they were, their job was to, was to inspect the product line, then their job, you know, their statistic would be number of successful or, or correctly qualified or, or um, not qualified, but uh, uh, inspected pieces. Uh, or it could even be, uh, number of inspected pieces rejected, but of course, you, you know, you wouldn't really want to have that. Uh, you really would want to have more that they were successfully gotten through the line because otherwise they might start, if they started false reporting their statistic, then they'd just be kicking back things that were actually okay and uh, just to get their stats up. So you want to come up with statistics in such a way that they, you, they can't really be falsified or be frowned on if they were false, falsified in some fashion. And that's part of the cleverness of trying to figure out what the statistic is. Even uh, a security guard, let's say, could have a statistic of the number of, uh, or, or either number of hours uh, in, a, in a weekly period, a number of secure hours, you could say, right? And ideally, that would just be floating right across the top. You know, if the guy worked 40 hours a week, then it would be 40, 40, 40. But you know that that's sort of a, the, the top. He can't get any more than 40, right? So he's, he's maxed out. But if there was an incident and somebody came in and, you know, tried to rob the place or there was some kind of a, a other, you know, thing that the security guy had to handle, then he uh, might... You know, the number of secure hours might come down because his job is to keep the place secure, not, you know, 
not get involved in. Uh, you know, if he has to go handle something, then that means there was a period of time where the place wasn't secure, and that would be the reasoning behind it. This is this is all sort of Hubbard think. I'm not I'm not endorsing this or saying this is all a great idea. I'm just telling you how it works. So any job can be staticized. Another phase is setting up the organizing board. I think that's also another early phase, um, maybe even before the production statistics come in, where you you know work out what the divisions of the organization are according to Hubbard's theory of communications, dissemination, treasury, production, quality, and and public facing or, or, or servicing the field. And then of course the division seven is the executive division. So anyway, figuring that whole thing out and figuring out you know what everybody's job is and, and that sort of thing, what their products are, what is it that each person should be producing. Um, you know, all of this stuff sort of rolls forward. And the, uh, you know, I would never recommend a system like this. I mean, you might think the comm system sounds fine, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe you think that, but it, it's, you know, it really creates as many problems as it solves. And the statistics problem is, is a huge problem because it focuses everybody's attention on only doing their thing and not helping other people or not working with other people necessarily unless it's going to contribute directly and immediately to their statistic. You're, you're keeping statistics on a weekly basis, even on a daily basis. And you uh, can assign quotas, and it seems like it makes sense that you would want, you know, ever-increasing production or, you know, for a ceiling of production to be reached and maintained. But the, the stress and the, and the, like, agony that comes with all of, with administering it, monitoring it, um, you then have the conditions, formulas, Hubbard's ethics technology starts coming into this, and things can get really abusive really fast. It's actually kind of scary how fast it happens. Um, so that is why I say mm, ixnay on the Hubbard system. <laughs> anyway, those are a little bit of what I can tell you about it. You know, maybe at some point I should do a whole video on the whole thing, but um, I would have to do a lot more study, so that's what I can tell you for now. Turd Ferguson, have you ever found yourself wishing you had the years this organization took from you back, or do you think that the strength you gained through this experience was worth that time and the possibility of a different life? Did this life experience justify the knowledge slash strength you gained or not? I realize these answers may still be formed, but any insight into your personal thoughts would be quite interesting. Well, I've certainly discussed in the past uh, on this show that I don't have lots of regrets or, you know, I have some for sure. I mean, I definitely don't, uh, you know, enjoy thinking about some of the things that I've done to people uh, when I was a Scientologist. I mean, you know, there was some some not so fun stuff that went down and, and I've, you know, tried to um, make up for that, do what I can, you know, to deal with that. As far as wanting the years back, though, or feeling like, you know, about it, um, Sometimes that's happened. Yeah, you know, I've, I've had that thought, um, but I can't do anything about that, <laughs> you know? And so I tend to not really think too much about it because of that. I'll, I will, uh, if anything, it sort of, um, you know, pumps up my purpose to keep going on what I am doing now and into the future. You know, so that's kind of how I, how I roll with that. I've talked to a lot of other Scientologists, former members, who, you know, also feel like, oh, if I had only, if, you know, if, 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 
And we always just kind of look at each other and shrug and go, well, okay, well, so, so much for that. So I, you know, I guess the short answer to this question and really the only real answer is, uh, you know, yes, I have, I have had those thoughts, but, you know, I, I don't really dwell on them uh, because there's not really a whole lot of reason to. Ayala. L. Ron Hubbard says that if you reach the state of clear and OT, you get all kinds of superpowers. How does the church explain people like Tori Magoo and Karen Della Carriere, who were top OTs and supposedly had superpowers, being suppressive people? What I mean is, can people be un-OT'd? Do body phaetons jump back on a person when they are declared? Obviously, clears and OTs don't really exist, but how does the church explain suppressive people getting to clear an OT? Isn't that a contradiction? Also, did you ever question why so many OTs were being declared when you were in? Do Scientologists ever see the contradiction? Okay, well, people are not un-OT'd. That's not really how it works. Actually, the real explanation within the Church of Scientology and what most Scientologists tend to believe is that the person never really got to OT or clear in the first place because they were out ethics and because they were suppressive people. Hubbard explains it like this. A suppressive person is incapable of making case gain or personal benefit from the auditing that they receive. They pretend, they act like they've gotten gain, but really all they're doing is um, they're inside, they're deeply afraid of anyone who can make anything better. Uh, they don't want people to be helped. So what Hubbard says is that such people who he also assigns as psychotic or antisocial or criminals, uses all these, all these labels for this. These people come into a Scientology organization, see that it helps, see that it's doing good, and they decide quite consciously that they want to undermine the organization. They want to take it down. And so what they do is they go along and they pretend. And they'll pay for auditing and they'll pay for training, but really what they're there for is to just undermine the whole place and, and ruin and sabotage any efforts on the part of the church to make the world a better place. Now, that is an, it's, it, it, it's, it sounds fine until you think about it, like so many of Hubbard's uh, assertions. Like, why would somebody spend hundreds of thousands of dollars like Tori and like, you know, Karen going into the sea organization and dedicating decades of her life to Scientology just to undermine it. I mean, it really doesn't make any sense at all. But Scientologists are desperate to find, you know, have some answer for how somebody could go all the way up the bridge or halfway up the bridge look like they're trained, look like they're processed, look like they're, you know, hanging out with everybody else and on the, here on the same terms as the rest of us, win or die in the attempt, and yet then go so horribly off the rails and go off the reservation and end up bad-mouthing the church and, and, and trying to get people out of it. They're, the Scientologists are desperate for some explanation because it can't be that Scientology doesn't work. It can't be that David Miscavige is a bad guy or that L. Ron Hubbard was a liar. Can't be. So the, the, it's, the, the, the Scientology mind just rejects those out of hand. So this is such an easier explanation for them to, to, to take on and, and, uh, and accept. 
So that's really about as much thought as they put into it. They really don't think very critically about this. As far as the point of how you know so many OTs have been declared or so many clears have been declared, well, a long time ago, probably about 15 years ago or so, the Church of Scientology stopped posting the declare orders of people on the bulletin boards. So most Scientologists for the last two decades have no idea how many people have been declared. Unless they're watching the N Theta internet that they're not supposed to be paying any attention to. If you find the big list of people who have spoken out against Scientology, you'll find thousands of names on that list. But no Scientologist will ever look that up on the internet, or at least they're not supposed to. So they don't know that it's been thousands of clears and OTs who have, you know, taken off and uh, made their way out of Scientology. And the church actively hides that information now. If you want to, if you want to, unless, um, I mean, I don't know what it's like exactly right this second, but up until the point I left in 2012, and for years, going back to the 90s, there were not a lot of suppressive person declares being posted publicly for Scientologists to see. Every now and again, but nowhere near the amount that I found out later were actually being declared. So that's a, that being a hidden figure and a, and a hidden source of information for Scientologists, they're just not aware of it. When they, when they do become aware of it is if it was obviously somebody that they know, and then they have to disconnect from that person. And given how many people have been vacating Scientology, there's probably not too many Scientologists at this point who, don't, who didn't know someone who was declared, because it's a pretty small world in the world of Scientology. But then, with that one or two people who they know who, they know who got declared, or even more, They'll, they'll write it off because, the, because then they'll go and, and ask to see the suppressive person declare and it will list out on it all the horrible things that the person did. And again, keep in mind that the Scientologist is looking for an excuse to write this person off. They're looking for a reason why the church would get rid of this person rather than looking at, wait a minute, maybe there's something wrong going on with the church here. That's not the mindset that goes on. They're looking at the, they want to target the person who has been declared. And it would take, it takes a lot of work to, to overcome that and get a Scientologist to start questioning whether it's the church that's in error rather than the suppressive person. Especially because there are steps that can be done by a suppressive in order to get back in the church's good graces and then get back into being a Scientologist in good standing who can go up the bridge. And if they do those steps, see it's so, again, and this isn't going to make a lot of logical sense, but then the Scientologist will just erase the fact that they thought the person was an antisocial psychotic who was there pretending for years to only be part of Scientology, but really they weren't. Like, they'll only assign that kind of hate to somebody if the person's not actively working at getting back into the church's good graces. If the person is working on it, doing what's called the A to E steps, then the Scientologist will go, oh, well, he was always okay. He just, screw he just really screwed up. And he's, but he's obviously a good egg, and he's trying to get back in, in good standing. So we'll, you know, we'll grant him that because he's on our team. So you see, there's all kinds of cognitive dissonance and, and biases flying around here that are just insane. Uh, it, but that's <laughs> that's Scientology. Tristan Bar Avraham. 
Scientology had a storefront on East Carson Street in my adopted hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It appears they didn't take into account the deep Catholic and Eastern European roots here. The mills may be gone, but the current generation was raised in the same cloth. Things did not go well for them, and I completely forgot about it until doing a deep dive into your well-above-average channel. They limped out to Carnegie, a nearby town on the way to the airport. What's up with that? Well, I actually Googled this, because I'm not familiar with Pittsburgh at all, and what I found was that they did have now what they call a city office. Now, a city office is the smallest, practically the smallest entity of a, of a group that Scientology can create. First, you, you could have a city office, then you'd have a mission, then you'd have an org or a class five organization, and then you move up to sea org level organizations. So city offices are just the first foray into a township or, or city or whatever. And that is what they were doing in Pittsburgh. It closed down in 2009 because, of course, there were, you know, like the factors you said, they could not overcome and they were struggling financially for years and and they were just you know limping along and they were sort of um you could imagine a city office is sort of a district office or outreach from a more central organization a class five org and in this case it was in cincinnati cincinnati was the main org and, and pittsburgh was a city office for them uh, so they closed up in 2009. Cincinnati was focused exclusively on their own problems and fundraising for their ideal org, which I think they opened in 2012 or thereabouts. And then somebody recently reopened the city office. It requires just one individual Scientologist investing money in books and materials and, and getting a package of these things and then getting an okay to use the copyrights of Dynetics and Scientology by signing a contract with the org and with the church, uh, the international church. And then they can, you know, uh, deliver some basic services. A city office would really just be very basic entry-level services. I don't think they would really even be doing a whole lot of Scientology auditing. They'd probably be concentrating on doing book one Dianetics stuff and very low-level courses. If they were to um, get bigger, if they started getting some more staff and building the place up, then they might move up to a mission status where they could start delivering auditing all the way up to the level of clear and more Scientology courses could be delivered there. So um, then, of course, you know, uh, if, if that gets big enough, then it could theoretically become its own organization, a class five org. So that's kind of the, the hierarchy of it and how that kind of works. And I'm sure that this place is never going to, in Pittsburgh, isn't going to go past city office status unless uh, David Miscavige decides for some reason that Pittsburgh needs an org like he did out in Dublin and they just throw the money down and build one and send a bunch of Sea Org members into it in order to staff it up. And uh, I doubt that he's ever going to do that in Pittsburgh, though. Sherry Sporn. Is there a set amount of time that an auditing session lasts or does it go until a certain result is attained? Do sessions sometimes go on for hours? I wasn't thinking about sex checks, just a typical auditing session. Oh yeah, auditing can go on for eight, nine, 10 hours. Uh, it depends on the situation. It depends on the kind of auditing that's being done sometimes. Uh, it depends on the will of the auditor really and the schedule of the person that he's auditing uh, to some degree. But if they're in the middle of something, 
Well, let me, let me put it this way. I'm going to back up a second and give you a couple of the fundamental rules of auditing according to L. Ron Hubbard. There are three rules, or you could say foundational attitudes that Scientology auditors have towards their preclears, the people that they're auditing. One, what turns it on will turn it off. Two, the way out is the way through. And three, get the PC through it. Now, here's, the, here's what those mean. When you're doing auditing, when an auditor is, is you know, asking questions or giving commands uh, from L. Ron Hubbard to the preclear, it is expected, in fact necessary to the auditing uh, for it to work, that the preclear will dive into his reactive mind or his case, which consists of not you know, these pictures, which is actual mental mass, it, it's, it's energy. It's, it's physical universe energy that stores these pictures, according to Hubbard. And they're supposed to be re-stimulating these pictures, re-stimulating this mass. It's supposed to literally be kind of out here, dissipated, not really doing much of anything. And then the auditing questions actually direct the person's attention to it so that that mass kind of coagulates and, and re-stimulates, they call it, and moves in on the person's body, they can actually feel it. Like they feel heavier, they feel tired, they feel like, Ugh. you know, that's, that's interpreted in a Scientology session to mean that the mass is moving in on the guy. It doesn't really mean that. I mean, the guy's just getting tired or he's going into a trance state or something like that, but it's all in the interpretation. And so the interpretation in Scientology is this mass is moving in, the guy's like all in a fog. They call this um, aniton, being aniton, or analytical attenuation. Uh, the analytical mind being the more aware and conscious part of your mind. So when it's attenuated or cut off, then you're experiencing aniton. This is a Scientology lingo. But the point is that the auditor is there to re-stimulate the PC. And the process, by running through whatever the process steps are, you will get the PC through that and make that mass literally erase and go away forever. And it will no longer be there. There won't be any mental mass there anymore. The person's still capable of remembering what happened, but all the junk connected to that particular incident or series of incidents will no longer be there. And that's the whole, that's kind of the whole theory of Scientology auditing is that there's all this stuff there to re-stimulate, just, just tons and tons of it. And through Scientology auditing, you bring it in on the person, run through it, which can take as long as it takes. It might take a half hour, it might take two hours, it might take 10 hours. It all depends on the person and the situation they're looking at and their emotional baggage connected with whatever it is that they're auditing on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But Hubbard says that if you turn something on with the preclear, in other words, get something re-stimulated, and I'm just gonna keep referring to this invisible piece of nothing here to, to represent that, um, and you move this mass in on the person and he's in the middle of it, it would be criminal, it would be a, a complete disservice to just kick the guy to the curb and say, come back tomorrow. And he's like, oh, in a fog and all screwed up. So the auditor's job, since he turned it on, is to turn it off, which means you gotta get the PC through it, right? That's, that's the rules. So 
I've seen sessions, you know, Hubbard himself says in the same policy where he lays out these rules that he went all night long with a PC. Now, the other rule that this bumps up against, though, is there's an auditor's code, which says that you're not supposed to audit a preclear who's tired or hungry, and you're not supposed to audit him past 10 o'clock at night. So, two things with that. Thing number one is you don't start a session at 9.45 at night. And thing number two is, you know, most of the time you can get this stuff handled in a couple hours. But if you can't, you go over and you get it done. And that has led to sessions sometimes going until 11 or midnight. And it's kind of amazing <laughs> how if the pre-clear is sitting there all doped out and bleh, you know, running through whatever he's running through, and he happens to glance at his watch, <laughs> oh my God, it's 11.30 at night, I gotta get home, I gotta go to work tomorrow. Suddenly, he just erases everything, right? It all just goes away because he's like, oh my God. So... You know, there's a certain amount of contribution to all of this by the preclear also, because the preclears in Scientology are being indoctrinated into expecting this sort of thing to happen. That's half the reason it happens, is because that's what they're they, that's what the preclears think they're supposed to be doing in order to be good preclears. If you were to, and what I mean by that is, if you were to take just Joe Schmo off the street and not tell him anything about what to expect, not tell him you know, that you're doing Scientology on him, not tell him how the processes work, not tell him, um, you know, not, not, how, not tell him how the e-meter works, not give him any kind of like setup for any of this, and you just sat him down and you started running a process on him, theoretically, the process should have the same results and do the same things that it would do with a Scientology-educated preclear who's been thoroughly indoctrinated into what to expect and what he's supposed to do. But instead, what tends to happen is they just look at you like, you know, I mean, if you were to do that, you would have a very different scenario. Let's just put it that way. Um, so a lot of this is just confirmation bias and, and indoctrination and, and preclears doing what they're expected to do. So that's, that's part of that. Anyway, there you go. The lightning and the thunder tells us it is time for Flash Answers. Diane Shields, I was listening to some of your older Q&A posts, and in one you mentioned working on a second book. I just wondered if it was still in the works as I enjoyed your past one. Congratulations on your wedding. Hope you have a great day. Thanks, Diane. Yes, I actually have three books that I want to get done, which are basically outlined or in, in, in pretty much an outlined form. And I've got some plans on how to buy myself some more time so that I can actually sit and do that, but um, it's going to be a little while. So that's kind of what's happening. My video schedule uh, with, you know, three videos a week and the, and the content I produce has kept me so busy that I haven't had time to also get another book done. So um, anyway, I'll ha you'll hear more about my plans on that as it unrolls in the coming months, you know. But, um, but yes, I do have the plans to get those books done. James Hutchings. Would former Scientologists be entitled to get access to their church records under the freedom of information laws? No, it's not a necessarily a horribly weird idea, except that freedom of information only applies to files and information that is controlled by the government, and uh, that does not apply to the Church of Scientology. Whoopsie-daisy. I'm wondering how people in orgs who often go hungry and live like vagabonds reconcile Miscavige's mountain of assets 
and staff of Scientology's slaves who are required to be his servants. Do they think he's simply more deserving than them somehow, or are they blissfully unaware of his greed, deceit, and selfishness? Well, actually, I'd say a little bit of both. Uh, you really did answer your own question there. Uh, it is both of those factors. When I, and I can speak for myself in saying that when I was a staff member and then a Sea Org member and I actually saw up close what David Miscavige's lifestyle was like when he came down into Big Blue in LA, um, I just wrote it off as he was the working, hardest working Sea Org member and Scientologist in the world. He deserved everything he got. Um, and he will look at all the things he was doing for us, look at how wonderful he was. Of course, he deserved to have some assistance and aids and help because otherwise he wouldn't be able to get his regular day-to-day -day job done. You know, could you imagine David Miscavige doing his own wash? What? That's crazy. That sort of thing. Okay, everybody, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me go on and on here. I always appreciate it. Leave any comments, questions, or feedback in the comments section below, and I will see them. Thanks a lot for coming around, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.